Hello to all our listeners. Thank you for joining us today on episode four of our MMM podcast, Ask the Expert. Before we get into our interview with our special guest, let me first introduce who we are. MMM stands for Music Men's Minds, a nonprofit organization that began seven years ago. Founded by Carol Rosenstein and her late husband, Erwin Rosenstein, Music Men's Minds' mission is to serve seniors suffering from neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, dementia, stroke, and even traumatic brain injuries. This story begins with Carol. Her husband, Erwin, fell into the clutches of Parkinson's. Erwin's decline due to his neurodegenerative disease was steep. But one thing kept the joy alive through the late stages of Erwin's life, and that was music. Erwin would light up at the piano and it seemed as if the disease was gone, if only for a moment. This is when Carol realized music is medicine. Thus, Music Men's Minds was born. Enjoy episode four. Hello, everyone. My name is Janelle Carante. I'm one of the administrative assistants here at Music Men's Minds, and I'm also a current UCLA third year psychology student. Hello, my name is Henry. I am also a MMM assistant and a UCLA fourth year biology major and global health minor. Today, we also have Carol Rosenstein, our founder of Music Men's Minds. Did you want to introduce yourself, Carol? Say hello. Well, hello to um, the listeners and a special big hello to our expert today, Dr. Michael Tout from uh, University of Toronto. Uh, Dr. Tout has been a friend of Music Men's Minds for several years already. We're deeply, deeply honored for his work uh, in research, music and the brain. Uh, Dr. Tout is well known among uh, scientific circles for his work specifically in Parkinson's, although I know that he goes um, um, away from that as well. And so today it's my extreme pleasure and honor to welcome Dr. Michael Tout as our expert for today's podcast. Thank you, Dr. Tout, for taking the time out of your busy schedule. Thank you for being here. Thanks for inviting me. Yep, and just to list a few accomplishments and accolades of Dr. Tal, um, he received his PhD in music with a cognate minor in movement science in 1983 and his master's in music in 1980, both from Michigan State University. He has been the director of the Center of Biomedical Research in Music since 1994, and he has been a visiting professor in medical and music schools around the world, and those are countries like Germany, the USA, Italy, and Japan. And Dr. Tout has co-authored and authored about 250 scientific publications in multiple fields. His publications have appeared in, appeared in journals like Frontiers in Human Neuroscience, Brain Sciences, and Neuroimage. So there's definitely a lot here with Dr. Tao. We'll go ahead and get into the questions now. So Dr. Tao, um, can you tell me what inspired you to pursue your current career path? Uh, well, first of all, these, uh, nothing is linear in the world, so there's, uh, that's usually an evolution of a lot of different steps you take in life. Uh, so I was a professional musician uh, in my earlier life. I had a degree in uh, uh, <clears throat> music from the Mozarteum, actually, from Salzburg, from the music university. and. Uh, played for many years and uh, uh, became maybe somewhat 
had a moment of burnout and had to kind of felt like I need to stop and do something different. Not really again out of music, but stop traveling and uh, gigging every night and uh, most nights. And so I went to the U.S. on a Fulbright. They had an interesting program, doctoral program that sort of combined music psychology, uh, music therapy, and I also uh, did a lot of uh, work in music theory. And so I became acquainted with this whole idea of music and health in some indirect ways, also became acquainted with the idea of uh, music and brain research. Uh, although that was really in an, its infancy back then, uh, music psychology was more of a behavioral science at that time. Oh, that changed very quickly. That was sort of at, the, at the crossroads where, when I went to grad school, things really uh, went into the uh, <clears throat> into the uh, neuroscience direction. So, um, so I was familiar with this idea that music can be a form of therapy. Um, I was. Um, not super impressed on the, the state of the art back then. I had interestingly very good mentors in that area that were pioneers and also realized that they needed to go in new directions or let's say the next generation needed to go into new directions. So, so I um, looked at this and uh, sort of either I'm going back to Germany and I play the violin again or I stay in the US and try to make a difference in doing research that became more and more brain oriented in terms of clinical translational research. How can music actually make a, how can, how can music change the brain in other words? So that became sort of a question and I decided uh, I would try to change the brain with music first, with my research. And if that didn't work, then I would go back to Germany and play the violin because I knew I could play the violin still. So um, I tried to develop a little bit of a different, different concept of um, how music can actually become clinical and change brain changing in terms of looking at my own music learning and music performing uh, career and what I felt changed uh, a musician's brain and a musician's uh, performance and I um, was very intrigued, always very intrigued with this idea of movement in music. So violinists, uh, pianists especially um, have to learn how to perform very intricate movements very, very, very fast. And in music that's possible, outside of music, if you take the sound away, it probably would not be possible. So I thought maybe music can be a physical stimulus, but I'm not a auditory stimulus for physical responses that, for instance, can people help people move better. So um, the classical experiment that I set up with a neurologist friend of mine was looking into an arrhythmic movement, the most consistent arrhythmic movement that we can think of in a disorder, which was the paretic walk of a stroke patient. So there is uh, one leg is weak and one leg is healthy. And so you have this consistent long short pattern in the movement. So that's consistently arrhythmic. And then we said, well, we were gonna play rhythmically enhanced music. And now we're gonna see what happens. Is 
the patient gonna change his gait pattern, his walking pattern to more symmetric rhythmic because they hear a rhythmic stimulus <clears throat> or he starts uh, sort of being ignored or not strong enough. So the, the paretic gait pattern stays. Now we had some hunches fairly sort of basic physiology that music has an impact, rhythm in music has an impact on the motor system pretty spontaneously. I mean, just simply going to a, a party, listen to strong beat music, you see everywhere tap of the finger and the foot, they didn't even, they don't even realize it. So we had some hunches that maybe there is a connectivity between the auditory system and the motor system where that rhythmic stimulus basically sort of entrains the motor response. So uh, to make this a little shorter, the long story, it worked dramatically. It worked absolutely dramatically. People, stroke patients walked much better, much more symmetric, much more stable and with relatively little effort. And so the, the auditory rhythm presentation made a real difference in the brain. And we started publishing papers and that would very quickly replicated. And so that this became a very uh, important contribution, a very different way to look at music in, in health. And actually uh, the, the walk, the, uh, the therapy that we developed, the, the techniques called rhythmic auditory stimulation. And it's actually now in the stroke care guidelines for the US and Canada. Now, now, uh, so two years later, I got a grant uh, to look at a completely different movement disorder, uh, Parkinson's disease. And we wanted to see if uh, there is the same effect, uh, the, 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 the gait dysfunction Parkinson's, of course, mm -hmm. very different stroke, mm -hmm. uh, but can we sort of shape that response too in, in functional ways? And if that would be the case, we could actually make an interesting case that there is some universal processing of rhythm and music in the brain that is independent of very different pathologies. Mm -hmm. And uh, Parkinson patients responded brilliantly to auditory rhythm in music. They could walk faster. They had more normal kinematics in their walking, safer. They uh, reduced freezing. Uh, so everything that's associated with uh, uh, walking in Parkinson's disease. So that's sort of the little bit of a review on where my mind came from and my <laughs> life came from. And then so the, as what kind of doors I tried to open to see if yeah. something that's very important that can be pursued and makes a difference in right. people's lives. Right. Wow. So yeah, definitely have done a lot of work to change a lot of people's lives with this research. Next question. Can you tell me about the Academy of Neurologic Music Therapy, NMT, and what is it and what role do you play at the Academy? Yeah, that's uh, another interesting part that I hadn't anticipated in my life because uh, I had sort of anticipated that maybe the neuroscience and neuro rehab community would be somewhat reluctant about this research and because it was very different. I mean, the research was solid methodologically, but the idea that audit, the auditory system can actually change the motor system, that was 
pretty unknown. And then I thought I'm gonna be the big hero in uh, music therapy. And it happened exactly the other way around. <laughs> so traditional music therapy was very skeptical. Uh, they had different ideas about how music works from a social science model, well-being, emotion, et cetera, et cetera. So walking and music therapy, that was kind of weird. Uh, but in the neuroscience and neuro rehab community, that was actually extremely well received because it really opened up a different angle into the brain. And that music is not just a concert cultural artifact, rather than it is a sort of brain language. So it uh, everything anticipated, my anticipation was sort of backwards. And the interesting thing is then from the neuro rehab and neurology and physician community, the question came, these are great results and we are actually replicating them, but we don't have anybody in the clinic, in the hospital to do this. Yes, we have a music therapist, but that's more singing songs and making things uh, so in different ways uh, uh, better. But uh, the, our, our core rehab staff doesn't know anything about how to implement auditory stimuli, including music. And so we, so <clears throat> we felt we needed to answer that. Yeah, we can do it. So we decided to create a uh, continuing education academy, which is the Neurologic Music Therapy Academy. And we tried to also give this a little bit of a different name to set it apart from traditional music therapy. And then we began to train, offer training to music therapists who wanted to, to become neurologic music therapists. So a different focus, different advanced background and knowledge, but we also, opened the doors right away to other rehab disciplines, physiotherapy, occupational therapy, SLP, psychology, uh, neurology, try to sort of create adapted uh, implementations for people who don't have the full musical repertoire at, at hand. And this uh, academy has been going on now for 20 years. That's, yeah. And I'm on the board of directors and help teach in some aspects in the academy. Um, and it's a it's a big organization. There are, I think, the five thousand uh, NMTs in the sixty plus countries, and uh, it's an incorporated uh, academy, which the main focus is continuing education. There's a big website, uh, www.nmtacademy.co. Very easy to find because it was incorporated in Colorado. This is why it's .co, nmtacademy.co. Yeah, thank you for sharing about the academy. We'll check it out later. Yeah. So the last time we spoke, uh, you provided several breakthroughs that stem from your research regarding the role of music, such as compensation for impaired basal ganglia function, enhancing connectivity in the brain, modulating dopamine, and shaping the timing of neuron findings. Um, can you explain on your latest findings, please? Yeah, I mean, you listed, you listed them. Um, actually, since the last time we talked, our second paper on uh, music listening and uh, neural networks in the brain and music stimulating musical memory in dementia and Alzheimer's disease and MCI was actually also published. So that's actually a, um, an interesting development in the last uh, two weeks, three weeks. Wow. 
it's uh, so the, the two studies that have now been published uh, are based on the following idea um, or the following observations. So uh, people with Alzheimer's disease frequently have pretty well-preserved musical memories that are out of, not matched with other memory functions. So they can remember words, lyrics of songs, and when they heard them the first, first time, it can play an enormous amount of, uh, it gives them an enormous amount of joy and sort of orientation uh, in their lives. <clears throat> uh, they don't remember what they ate five minutes ago. Uh, so this is a observation that's been pretty well documented not terribly systematic, but it's definitely there. So the question is for us, um, why is that? Is there something, what's in the brain with music that keeps those musical memories uh, more preserved? And the interesting thing is um, a lot of times these musical memories are connected to autobiographical memories. So there is a sort of a cognitive reorientation when they listen to music that they've known all their life, uh, which is very atypical for the rest of their more, you know, agitated, confused state that's, that's unfortunately often there. So, so we did a study in two steps. The first study was we had people listen to a playlist of music in the brain scanner that they had known for 25 plus years and that they're still recognized as sort of salient to their memory and their lives. And then we interspersed that with music that we had composed in the same styles, but uh, they heard the music an hour before they went into the scanner. So we had, we had this long-term musical memory and we had a so one hour of musical memory. And then we looked at, we used fMRI, uh, technology to study the brain networks. So that, uh, that study came out very, very interesting. And I think we had some media release at one of the biggest neuroscience conferences dedicated to that particular study. Wow. Because the, uh, uh, the brain networks for this long-term music memory is what we call in neuroscience characteristic of deep encoding. So there's a lot of areas in the brain that create a very diverse network that also includes areas, parts of, parts of the brain that are not affected by the disease term. Whereas the one hour network, the one hour memory for music was basically just an auditory based listening network that probably dissipated within minutes after they got out of the brain scanner. So the second study that then we decided, okay, then let's see what happens if we have these people listen to their playlist every day for four weeks. Uh, sort of focused listening, not background listening, but sit down with their spouse, caregiver, whatever, listen to music and maybe even engage in some talking about what, what music is that, what, what, did we do, what did this mean to us, et cetera, et cetera. And then we're gonna do some cog cog cognition testing, neuropsych testing, and we're going to do another form of brain imaging before and after that month. And so these data now can actually be read in the public because the interesting thing is that in the memory tests of the neuropsych evaluation, they actually improved statistically. 
was, was a lot big, but they improved uh, statistically significant, which is extremely, mm -hmm. extremely unusual for people with dementia that they improve on any uh, cognitive function. Mm -hmm. So that was interesting to see, but uh, that was sort of anchored by changes in the brain, connectivity changes in the brain. This four-week listening program made changes in the brain. Wow. So there were connectivity uh, improvements between different regions of the brain. And, you know, the brain is this one trillion neural network that actually uh, a healthy brain is super connected, functionally super connected. Okay. And so we saw that, that some of that connectivity was actually improved during that music time. And th those data are out and they are in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease and the editor of the journal actually uh, recommended that, per, uh, that paper for a special media release to make that finding really, really well known. So, so we were selected for this particular recognition and uh, we work on our publicity areas here at the University of Toronto and mm -hmm. St. Michael's Hospital, which was our partner. They're working on media distribution and media releases to kind of mm -hmm. publicize that finding. So that's the cognitive, the Alzheimer's part. Right. And uh, I think we have, we're looking at a lot of brain mechanisms with Parkinson. We are not doing any big clinical studies anymore because we've done that for years and years and years. And that's been replicated so well that we don't really need to do this anymore. But right. we want to uh, assure that we know that what kind of brain mechanisms are actually solid and robust underlying these great effects. So we are looking at, we are one of the few places in the world that can actually do a neurotransmitter dopamine imaging. Okay, so the typical imaging is structural and functional. You look at brain regions, you say, that, oh, okay, that lights up, that lights up, that lights up, that connects to this, bum, 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 bum. Neurotransmitter imaging is you're actually imaging biochemistry. You image, you're imaging uh, substance, substances, neurotransmitter substances, mm -hmm. dopamine. Mm -hmm. In this case, and so we uh, uh, found actually there was a reduction in dopamine in the healthy benchmark group right now, and we have approval from Health Canada now to also uh, uh, go take uh, Parkinson patients and, and put them in the brain scanner. Some of that was slowed down because of COVID. And we also looking at um, direct intercellular recordings, because one of the places here, one of the big teaching hospitals does actually DBS, a brain stimulus implant surgery. And they do it in two steps. Wow. So the, 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 the implant device goes into the basal ganglia, and then they leave the wires out for a few days to do testing, is it's in the right place, does it work properly? And then they close down and then the wires go into the, um, the pacemaker that's somewhere in the shoulder. But there is a three days of an open brain. Wow. These people are obviously, they are alert, they walk around. They, uh, wow. But their brain they, is open. Yeah, I mean, the skull is wow. not open. Yeah. And so we can actually be recorded from their um, move hand movements rhythmically mm -hmm. or self-paced. Mm -hmm. uh, hand movements, music, rhythm paced or self paced. Mm -hmm. And then we can be actually recorded directly the uh, spiking of the neurons 
in the brain region directly. Right. So usually, so EEG, intracellular EEG techniques. Yeah. And so we have those data, we have them, uh, we're in the process of analyzing them. It's a very slow study because there are not that many cases per year. And right. also, not all patients will actually want to be in an experiment during those three or four days. Mm -hmm. so that's a very fragile, vulnerable moment for them. But right. we have some data, good data. And so that's another mechanism business that is just, so a little bit different than what typically people do. Yeah. The intracellular stuff, we can do that and we can do neurotransmitter imaging. But we also did some fMRI connectivity study that's been published, like, I think, three years ago. Yeah. So we are, we are certain that music has a, uh, works on the impairment level in the brain and actually induces brain plasticity uh, to uh, stabilize some of the behavioral responses that music can trigger. So wow. those are the, the big areas we do. We're doing other research too. We just completed a big stroke study with upper extremities and, and we're embarking on a study with autism and music and cochlear implants. So this is an extremely uh, busy place. And I have great students, I have great postdocs and I have great collaborators. Definitely, yeah. So for mm -hmm. listeners, uh, if you're interested in reading this study, it was published in 2018 called Rhythmic Auditory Stimulation for Reductions of Falls in Parkinson's Disease, a Randomized Controlled Study. I've actually taken a peek of it. I'm a psych student right now. We do uh, read studies like this, and it's very, very interesting. For sure. the, the reduction in falls, that study is not a brain study. That's a, that's a falling study. Mm -hmm. That's a yeah. good study for reduction yeah. falls. Big, big issue. But the 2019, there's an fMRI study uh, that we did. And then the uh, that's an fMRI study that is the first author's name is Brownlick. Mm -hmm. And then the uh, two, the uh, Alzheimer's study just came out in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. So that is the, the preprint, the online preprint that people can find. Mm -hmm. And then the other study was a year ago or so. But I have, I'm send, sending some of that stuff to Carol so she can nice. you know, distribute that to her network. Nice. So yeah, definitely many studies by Dr. Tao to read up on if you're curious has a lot of research findings. So next question, your current research, obviously we've talked about it a lot, currently focuses on how music affects patients with Parkinson's and their physical rehabilitation. Um, do you think that the same benefits would apply to those with neurological disorders like Alzheimer's, dementia, stroke, in the sense that it betters their movement or in that same regard? Yeah, stroke, we know. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, uh, I mean, it's very different than Parkinson's, it's, but we know that stroke uh, patients walk, their mobility is greatly improved and they're trained with rhythmic auditory stimulation and as a neurologic music therapist. And as I said, this um, it's in actually the actual uh, stroke clinical stroke care guidelines in the U.S. for v, the VA and the, the Department of Defense um, systems, and and then for all of Canada, uh, Alzheimer's is not is not a movement disorder. Okay, so they, but it is certainly helpful 
to keep them physically active and involved mm. because there's obviously a connect a connection between cognition and movement that's often mm -hmm. overlooked mm -hmm. and so it's not so much a rehabilitation effect that nmt can do with alzheimer's but it can certainly strengthen boost overall brain health <clears throat> all right then parkinson talk about it yeah yeah, yeah. In 2020, um, MMM and Carol was recognized as a CNN hero. And in the article, you were quoted that um, saying, when a musical memory is triggered in people with memory disorders, they don't just remember the song, they also usually remember some other autobiographical memory that are connected. Um, can you explain exactly how this happens to the music? Uh, yeah, it's uh, a little bit like classical, classical conditioning. So if there is a, uh, and so at the pairing of two events, okay, so let's say it's your wedding day and that's a big emotional day for you. Right. And, and that is accompanied by a big piece of music that has also great emotional balance to you. And so now they become paired. And now every time, most likely, I would say, when you hear your wedding music. Yeah, you're reminded of the day. Probably your, your, those memories of your beautiful wedding day are probably more accessible in presence. So this is a, a little bit like classical condition. So music has an enormous emotional and uh, just pleasure value for people. And so it can become a meaningful conditioning stimulus to bring stuff back, non-musical stuff back. All right, next question. For the members at Music Men's Minds, we not only have seniors, but also an intergenerational audience. So this is college students like uh, Henry and I. Uh, what advice could you give to students such as myself who are interested in conducting music cognition research like how to get into what you did and how you got where you are and what you would advise students to do so you're, you're talking about a potential career path potentially any advice that you could give for students yeah, in you, that field but i mean basically the two ways to get, you can go about it. One is you're a, in, in music school, you're training as a professional musician and you expand into, let's say, neuroscience, neuropsychology, et cetera, et cetera. So at some point in time later in your graduate studies or whatever, you begin to combine that, okay? So um, <clears throat> there we have, uh, I mean, there's a typical, I, uh, example could be somebody has a bachelor's in music and uh, gets a master's in uh, neuropsychology or somebody who has actually a master's in music performance and becomes an MD. Okay. The other way around is a little more difficult in terms of the performance part unless you have been sort of a highly proficient amateur performer all the, all the time and you are going through all the neuroscience, neuropsychology, neurology, whatever, medicine, but you're keeping an interest in music and at some point in time you get into some academic program 
that actually does music cognition research. Mm -hmm. There are some places in the world that actually do that. So, but it takes, it's, it, it's a little bit of a, it's combinatorial. Mm -hmm. okay. It's definitely not, um, when you're 18, you say, I want to be a music cognition specialist. Yeah, yeah. That's very niche profession to decide at 18, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you, it's a combinatorial kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And um, especially if you're interested in clinical applications of right. music, then if you're in some kind of health profession or psychology or whatnot, then that's actually not that terribly difficult that you can create sort of a clinical focus Right. In, uh, in your research interest. Okay, so translational research is really a big, big buzzword. Yeah. For your, for your <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on Ask the Expert. You shared such amazing research findings, and we're so grateful that you were able to come on today and share your knowledge with us. We can't take, wait to hear more about your amazing work in the future and all the many things that you will discover and thank you to all of our listeners for joining us today if you'd like to learn more about music men's minds please visit our website at www.musicmensminds.org if you didn't know music men's minds is a nonprofit organization based in west los angeles serving seniors with parkinson's alzheimer's dementia ptsd stroke and even traumatic brain injuries by using music to bring these seniors healing and joy if you find this a cause that you would like to support, please consider donating to Music Men's Minds. We accept donations through our website, again, www.musicmensminds.org. And thank you again to Dr. Michael Tao for joining us today, and we will see you all next time.